Hi, it's a little late on Friday, but um, <laughs> I'm always busy. This week is Parshas Baharas, you know, but yesterday was Lag Bomber, so I'm still, I guess you said this is Motsi Lag Bomber, so I'm going to Lag Bomber Mood, so I want to rather talk about that. Um, because uh, it's very remarkable in our, this day and age that uh, Lag Bomber, which is from the historical point of view, it seems to be, how do, where's it come from? It's not in the Gemara or anything like that. Is the fastest growing Jewish holiday, to my knowledge. Uh, that's quite a statement, I said. By that, I mean more and more people every year go to Maroon. My son in Israel was there the other day. It's uh, crazy, you know. There's uh, 300, 400, 500, every year is more. And uh, this is strange, because it's sort of counter-modern, right? What is Lagbomer exactly? Uh, first of all, I don't know. Nobody knows exactly. We know it's an Indian called Lagbomer. There are suggestions that Rabbi Kiba's students... Uh, stop dying on that day. That's a suggestion. It's not clear. It's not in the Gemara. It might be in the Gemara. Depends on Gears's. Uh, but it's not clear. You don't start to hear really but till the Rishonim. If you're interested in the history of the uh, Lagmar issue, look at Reb Zevin. He's got a, a powerful article on that from the historicist point of view. Uh, and by that I mean, you know, it's not 100% clear that the students stop dying Lagmar and what do you do with those sheetas like the Rizal who say you got to keep all 49 days, Sphira, um, you know, Chumras. Uh, uh, and uh, this is very interesting in that regard. Um, let me get past that. What is characteristic of a log boomer? Well, you go to Maroon, it's a pilgrimage, it's a fire, it's uh, all kind of wild customs, it's, it's a happening. And I'll say it again, it's the biggest happening in the Jewish world that I know of anyway, and more and more people, including Chilonim. That's what strikes me so interesting. Every year, more and more non-religious Jews go because they want to be at, at, at uh, Miron for the uh, Lag Bomber. And believe you me, they're not going for a Woodstock because there's a bunch of Hasidim over there. So usually they couldn't stand to be in their company. I'm being very frank about it. It's really uh, a secularist. But they'll go in Lag Bomber. And they'll dance, and they'll drink, and all this sort of thing. It's, it's uh, quite remarkable to me from a sociological perspective. And um, what you end up coming up with is they'll say, well, it's the, it's the yard of Shem Yochai. That's where they're going. Because otherwise, it would just be a day of uh, maybe no Tachman because they stopped dying that day, maybe, or something like that. But where, where do you get the celebrations of the fire? No, no, no. The answer goes, it's the Halula. It's the Yartzeit of Shem Yochai. That's the day to celebrate. And then all the Mepharshim say, like the, the classical Mepharshim say, why celebrate? I thought a Yartzeit is the day when you said. Moshe Beno died. It says they're all crying. So how come a Shem Yochai say they're, they're, they're happy? Huh? And by the time he works through all the different sources... What you end up seeing is, you say, well, no, Shem Yichai is a different story, because when he died, he, he left in a blaze of glory. I don't mean that literally, I'm saying in a Kabbalistic blaze of glory, because if you know anything about the Zohar at all, all the way at the end of the Zohar, there's a part called Idrizuta, the Asifa Katana, which means the description of his death, when he's surrounded by students, it's like a Kabbalistic from version of a Socrates situation, which he's surrounded by the students, he's revealing them uh, um, information about God, as he's going, and then he leaves in a fiery, his bed is carried off over in a fiery image. Um, so, the, I'm talking historically now. So, the sensibility arose and developed and evolved, clearly, that this is, um, what shall I say, the day of the Zohar. It's like the Shavuos of Kabbalah. Uh, the regular Shavuos is for Nigla. And even according to Kabbalah, it's also the, 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 the Shavuos happened to Nister too, but I'm, I'm just saying how it has evolved historically. And what's unique about um, Lag Bomer is, is when Shem Yochai left, and 
and, and, and told his students, he said, now that I'm going, you can write all this stuff down. And uh, as a result, the world's enriched by Kabbalistic knowledge. Uh, the name Zohar is simply a name that they gave to it in the Middle Ages, but, you know, it's a, it's a fountain of, of all this supernal knowledge. And if this was released on the day of his passing, then the day of his death was an occasion of joy because it was accompanied by great compensation, compensation what he left behind. This seems to be the, the, the idea behind the Hilul of Shem Yochai being a big deal. So it's, it's, it's the day of mysticism. Remember, mysticism asserts that the rationalism is, is, doesn't comprehend the totality of all knowledge. Well, uh, it's counter-rationalism. I want to be very clear. I've said this before, I'll say it again. You have to distinguish between rationality and rationalism. Rabbi Shimbi Yochai was a rational person, but he wasn't a rationalist. Not in the Zohar, anyway. Rationality means you have basic common sense. A rational person doesn't jump off the roof. A, ra- a rational person doesn't throw himself into a fire or jump off a ship and drown. You know, those are rational. Rationalism is a system of thinking in which you say everything can be comprehended by human reason. That's a different story. That carries a lot of baggage with it. Is it really true that human reason can comprehend everything? Obviously, a religious person, uh, if they think it through, doesn't believe that. You hear what I just said? A religious person doesn't believe that human reason can comprehend the totality of everything. God, by definition, is beyond that. So many people who are superficial, they're not superficial, they say, well, the Ramam believe in rationalism. and uh, No, he doesn't. You know, he, he talks about the limits of rationalism. You read the guy for the perplexed. He's most interesting when he speaks about the limits of what a person can know. There are parts that, that are beyond. And God is obviously one of them. And he goes, devotes a great... He's pretty radical in that assertion. This is the Mernavuchim. So, rationality, rationalism, very interesting. And uh, I think today, the masses that are going more and more and getting into Lagbomer, where are you on? Dancing in the fire and drinking and all the rest of it, it's, it's a certain statement that, you know, the, the, the mystical, the counter-rationalists, they don't like the rationalist attitude to the, you know, description and understanding of all phenomena. It doesn't work for them. Maybe their life is not well. Maybe they're simply intuitively disgusted or dissatisfied with this smug, rationalistic way of uh, analyzing everything, which always comes out with them losing. I don't know. Because how can I know? But I'm simply pointing out that this very f- fascinating that Lagbam has really evolved into the celebration of the mystic as opposed to the rationalistic. And it's uh, wildly popular. Uh, clearly, the rational, cold view doesn't appeal to all. There are many people who have a gene in them in which the non-rational... I remember, not, they're not that they're not rational people. They believe in rationality, but they don't feel comfortable with rationalism. Uh, it's a very important distinction, at least in my mind. Uh, so this is very, very interesting. And so a lot of people are drawn to the figure of Shem Yochai, the Halul of Shem Yochai, the whole Zohar, and, and the Kabbalah that emerges after it. And this is side of Judaism, like I said, where it speaks to them. Uh, even though Kabbalah itself is a very complex business, it goes without saying. But nevertheless, whatever parts they can pick up, uh, they find uh, much more satisfying than, as I said, where the cold business and uh, and even the, the the plain study of Baba Kama, so, so to speak. So it's uh, just just remarkable to me. But I'm not finished. In addition to that, there's this business of um, the Hadlokos, which the Swarm have been writing about all the time. There's old custom to go to Maron and burn something. If you want to be get get down and dirty, the minig, the old minig is to go buy go to store, buy a, a suit, let's say for eight hundred bucks, take it to Maron and burn it. 
which sounds like a pagan thing. And believe you me, the classic poskim, what I would call the Litvisha types, even though they're not from Lithuania, uh, very disapproving of this. Look at the Chassam Sofer. Look at the Sholomeshu. By the way, let me just t- digress for a second. A certain rabbi I spoke to earlier this week, very nice person, and he was talking about my podcast and all that. He liked it and, and whatever. But he said, Rabbi Katz, why don't you ever give any Mara Makomos? Uh, I'm going to tell you something. I'm sitting here in my office, my office before Shabbos. I'm not preparing a long, formal lecture. I do those when I'm on the road or in Baltimore. These are just kind of off the cuff. But I do not deprecate what he's saying. So if there's anybody out there that actually wants a specific Marmacomas, it's not so hard. Just uh, just email me and I'll send them to you. But I don't want to sit here. It would be boring to me to say, look at the show Meshav in this and this place, and look at the Chassam Silver. Where was it in Rachel uh, Gimel? Where I can find it. These, but these are fairly well known. Most of the things I quote, uh, if you're listening and you're a scholar and you wouldn't raise the question if you weren't a scholar, no, no non-scholar is interested in Marmacomas. I don't think it's really so hard to get, but I'm more than happy. Just email me, and I'll and I'll do my best to send you the uh, the, the sources. Not a problem. Now I'll proceed. The um, interesting these people like the Chassam Silver Elvis. Man, he said if I was there, I wouldn't. Uh, I, I'd be a party pooper. I would sit in the corner and not participate. They don't like the whole Batashkas aspect, you know. And what is this business of burning clothes and and so on and so forth? And the Sholomeshev says very piously, he says, "Believe you me." I mean, this is such an easy speech for a pulpit rabbi to give. If Hashem Yochai was here today, he would get much more to take the $800 and give it to a poor family and let them get some food, let them pay a tuition. And all the middle class types nod their head and agree, yeah, oh, he's right, and it's very smug, and so on and so forth. And of course he is right. I agree with him, but that doesn't mean anything. The mystic is not interested. People are not going to Maroon and driving up or schlepping from out of the country for a Sholomeshev type approach. You know, they know you can give Tzedakah at any time. They're going to have a mystical experience of some sort or another. Maybe it's accompanied by booze, maybe not. But they're going, they're trying, they're trying to get uh, an intense, uh, a passionate experience of religion, which you don't get by giving 800 bucks to the dollar. Even though, from a rational point of view, oh, it's very important. And by the way, I happen to agree with him. If you give money for tzedakah, I'm a, I'm a rabbi, I, I, I got to raise money for people all the time, all the time, all the time. So I get it, you know, but it's, a, it, 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 it's like two trains passing each other. The people who are interested in the Hadlokas and all the other things uh, are, are, are looking for a different, um, what shall I say, not a different form of Judaism, because that's not true, but a different road within Judaism. And that, that, that part is true. It's absolutely fascinating. Still, what's that is the idea, even if you say that, but what is the Indian of burning clothes? Uh, it's kind of weird, isn't it? You know, they, they, if you look in the Tanakh, there were a couple of kings, I remember also, and a couple others, where they burned clothes, burned spices, when they die, but it's never clear. Uh, the, according to pure Pashiv shot, some of these kings die from gangrene and things like that. So the body stunk. So pure Pashiv shot is, you know, they, they, they did a lot of um, spices, you know, for the stench of the body. Although many before I should give other interpretations, but nevertheless, it's kind of weird. Um, the Hasidim, <laughs> very interestingly, the different Hasidic books, they'll try, you know, they're very ingenious. I'm serious. And, you know, the best idea I saw is, uh, listen to this, Rav Shem Ben what's the story? He was in the cave. He was in the cave without clothes. I think everybody here who's listening to this knows what I'm talking about. You know the Gemara, the Agatha. 
He and his son were hiding from the Romans in the cave for 12 years, and what they do? They only wore their clothes for davening. The rest of the time, they sat up to their necks in sand or something like that, right? So it means they were going naked. Not walking around naked, but nevertheless naked without clothes. So what are you doing? You're burning clothes. When you go to Maron, you go to Kevin Shemilchai, you're burning clothes. That's really cool, right? And if you take it even farther, I forget who, but Soskar, people like that, they'll say, you know, no, Shemilchai was, was in the Madrig of Adamarish and Kodamachet. The original Adam and Eve went around naked because they didn't even know, they had no shame. That is to say there was no Yitzhar at that time, you know, in the Garden of Eden. Uh, wow, so you're burning clothes. Look what the Chazidim did. They took the idea of burning clothes a little strange. They turned it into a, what's it, an exalted idea, right? That you're, you're, you're going beyond human desires or something like that, where we have to be clothed. It's, it's a busha that you and I have to wear clothes. I mean, this is a very lofty way of looking at things. I mean, I'm serious, I'm not being funny. That you and I have to wear clothes, it's a shame. Really, the human being should be such that we should all go around without clothes, like Adam and Eve, and there shouldn't be any gates of horror and things like that, but unfortunately we sinned. You know, it's a it's just a very uh, interesting symbolic business. Listen, walking around without clothes <laughs> ain't so push it. You know, uh, who is it? Ramosha Feinstein? Yeah. Remember in the I'm bet you you know this. This is a very famous Jew. Ramosha Feinstein dealt with a guy, I remember when he was in Russia still, before he came to America, dealt with a guy who thought he's the Mashiach. Okay, that's one problem. And he acted crazy. And one of the things he did, this in Russia, Soviet Russia, in the 1920s. He walked, and he was a Rebbe in a school or a cheder or something like that, which I do believe. Anyway, uh, he walked around naked sometimes, right? Why? He said, Mashiach has to do this and this. And since he's also on Rishon Kodamachet, so he goes around nude in Russia. I'm mean, in Belarus, to be exact. Lubon. Oh, my goodness. And uh, where is it? This in Ebenezer somewhere. Let's put it this way. If you see something in the Shalos and Chubas, it's not to tell stories. There's a legalistic reason for it. Obviously, there's a lady married to this nut. She's trying to get out of it. Poor, he does, he's trying to help Aguna, right? Trying to help Aguna. You can totally hear the situation. And, uh, and the guy was a tough so-and-so. And, uh, you know, like I said before, he's convinced he's the Mashiach. He, he, he does all kinds. Of, he steals things. I remember he, he used to beat up people because he wanted down for the element. You can all look it up yourselves. It's in Ebenezer in the first volume, near the end somewhere. And, again, if you really are interested in the source, uh, just email me. It's not hard to find. It's not hard to find. Uh, anyway, and Ramosha, you know, a classic... You know, Shalos and Shubas, how do I help this Aguna over here? And so he had to make the argument, the guy's not nuts. You understand? He's strange. But the question is, is he legally a Shota? You get what I'm saying? You have to be very legalistic over here. Don't just throw names out, the guy's nuts. Uh, in fact, he was like kind of machalic between nuts and insane. Between nuts and insane. I remember this. He said, listen, uh, if I remember correctly, he said, how's it go? A person thinks Mashiach is, uh, he's doing a nutty thing. Well, guess what? A person who Ovid of Adizar is also doing a nutty thing. Didn't people in ancient times worship sticks and stones? Isn't that nutty? But they weren't insane. Insanity is more narrowly defined than halacha. Uh, so if a person says he's a Mashiach, he's not insane, he's just nuts. I think Rabbi Soloveitchik uh, disagreed with him. It's in one of the Herschel Schachter books. Saying, I, I, you know, it's in there somewhere. 
where he disagreed. He said, no, for purposes of Mashiach, he's crazy. And Ramosha Feinstein did perform the get. I mean, that's the, that's the end of the story. It's a long shuv at the end, somewhere of Ebenezer, Chalikal. But uh, there you go. The, the, you know, let's put it this way. So don't walk around nude in the street. But Shem is a different story. When he was in the cave, it's a different story. And therefore, all these ceremonies that become so universally po- po- popular, the pilgrimage to Maron, the going to the grave, the uh, bonfires, the fires everywhere. Um, and nobody explained exactly where the fire comes from, but I don't think that's so hard because if you look in the Zohar and did Zuta, I remember seeing this when he actually is Nifter, the the Mito, the bed is like surrounded by fire and goes up to heaven or something along those lines. So the notion of lofty Shimbi with fire, that doesn't surprise me. The burning of clothes, though, that's cute from the, I think it's an ASOS or somebody like that. That, you know, you're like, you know, going back to a, a better time, a time of uh, 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 of Garden of Eden, uh, you know, which the Kabbalah yearns for, because the Kabbalah is all about tikkun, uh, uh, you know, restoring, bringing the Mashiach now in a Kabbalistic fashion. That's how Shabtai Tzi started. Uh, but he was wrong, but the idea is right, that you restore the Messianic era. You, we come back to Eden through a particular way of performing mitzvahs, a particular way of performing mitzvahs, which I won't go into. Uh, so just, these are very heavy items. However, what is this, everything I said now, I think is fairly exotic, especially for an American audience, or let's put a chutzlar's audience. Most of the people listening to this are in America or, or in Europe somewhere. Um, what, what is the part that really speaks to us today? I'll tell you what I think. Speaking in the year 2019, the story of Shem Yechai is very interesting on many levels. And the most interesting is when he exits the cave. Right? I think, like I said before, I assume everybody here knows the Agarata and Daflam and Gibble and Shabbos. It's so universally spoken. You must have heard it many times. And so he's in the cave for 12 years with his son. And then they're able to come out. It's over. The problem is over. And when they come out, it's too harsh of a, of a contrast. And they see people plowing and sowing and that sort of thing. And they say they're, 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 they're abandoning learning Chai Olam and they're getting involved in Chai Shah. And they would look at them and the people would be burned. They would look at them and they would be burned. Nisrov. I don't know if that to be meant literally or not literally. I think the Marshal says not literal. I think uh, he usually does. The Marshal is the person you go to when you want to, if you're looking for a non literal interpretation of a God as a general. Marshal is very interesting in that particular aspect. But um, on the other hand, we do have the famous story. Of Yonas and Benazil, he was learning so hard. Remember that? That the bird flew over and got burned? So this notion that you give off like heavy, heavy duty learning, I mean heavy, heavy, heavy duty learning, gives all like radioactive waves that really uh, have a physical manifestation, uh, you know, can actually cause burning or, or some destructiveness, is uh, very, very interesting. Of course, on the other hand, we also know none of Avio didn't exactly get burned. It says, Gufen kaim in this reference. So the Srefa by Nanavio, as I spoke a couple weeks ago, refers to a spiritual phenomenon. So if we want to analyze what does it mean burning, you know, that, that would take another half hour. I'm not going to do that. But uh, it's just interesting that they, uh, you know, see it burning. You know, I'm reminded of, uh, who was it, Ramesh Shapiro? It's very famous. Maybe you heard it, Ramesh Shapiro. You know, who started the Dafyomi. He said, what's the difference between a Hasidic Shiva Bachar and a non-Hasidic Shiva Bachar, literally Shiva Bachar? 
And he said, the answer is, you see the difference when they read about Yonas and Benazil learning and the, and the bird getting burnt. The Hasidic Bacher sits there by his palace, contemplating the awesome nature of such radioactive Kedusha that actually uh, uh, cause, uh, cause, uh, cause something to be burned if it goes in its, its radar zone. And the Lithuanian Bacher, he said, is sitting there figuring out the Baba Kama aspects. The guy was caused the death of a bird. Who did the bird belong to? Was it a Gromo? Was it a direct? Uh, in which he's held responsible or not direct as a garmi, meaning he reduced it down to the mundane level. <laughs> but to get back to Shimon Yochai, what happened is the Baskol came to go back at the cave for a decompression period. And they spent another, what was it, uh, 12, 12 months until they came out again. And then there was a difference. The father, the son, Belazim and Shimon, uh, would still burn people when he looked at him, and the father would, would, would heal it. It's just, and, and that's a dissonance between the older generation and the younger generation, which is which is absolutely fascinating. And I think the Vilna Gaon even says the difference is the Roshim Ben Yochai was already older and more mature, and he remembered the world before that. For whereas for the son, the cave was the formative experience of life. He has to be spent his, his uh, early teen years or something along those lines. That became his formative experience, and therefore the reentry was uh, so rough and uh, and so violent. Uh, until at the end, they, they, they stopped burning people. I mean, that's the end of the story. This is so interesting because, um, I submit, because the cave metaphor is very powerful. You and I, in the modern era, the Jewish people perhaps always, have uh, always had this uh, you know cave thing where we kind of retreat to. We create our own ghettos, mental ghettos, or, or sometimes uh, residential ghettos. I always like to say in my history classes that the traditional Judaism in the past was grounded on four principles, even though the people wouldn't know it at that time. They just took it organically, but they, they, but they, you know, they assumed it. And then I always talk about uh, fundamentalism and nomianism and an autonomous course of communities, the Cahill is old, and cultural insularity. What does cultural insularity mean? That's a cave. So today is a day school, it's a Jewish neighborhood, it's a show. Every parent who wants his kid to be from tries their best in this day and age. You know, keep them away from this, keep them away from that. Hopefully they won't get into this thing. It gets harder. The TVs are out, now you got the internet, you got all the businesses, you got the phones. I mean, I know, I get it. And uh, the result is that whenever you have a, a, a real problem uh, confronting some aspect of modernity, uh, we haven't come up with real solutions. Best thing we, we, we with answers. Best thing we do is, is create a cave or retreat within a cave. That's like a classic Jewish uh, stratagem. Believe it or not, it's a pasuk in in uh, Yeshayahu also, who says I forget where it is. Where is it again? Perik Mem Gimel, I think. Leich ami bobachaderecha, come my people, bobachaderecha, go in the in the door in the cheder, uskar delaschavadecha, and lock yourself in. Wait out the storm. That's where you get the expression, wait out the storm. I mean, isn't that interesting? Uh, there's, there's the storm of modernity, and you have no solution for it. The only thing you can do is, uh, you know, go into the cave. So right now, if this was 1960, so I guess there's no way I can keep my kids away from the Beatles. Well, if you keep them in the, in, in the store for 10 years, in the cave for 10 years, the Beatles will be out, and then something new will come in. You see, it's, it's that kind of notion. Because all the storms out there come and go. Uh, every uh, movement or theory or uh, philosophy 
has a life, a shelf life of, you know, a generation or so. Uh, remember, a hundred years ago, people were willing to, to, to sacrifice their lives, Jews, to sacrifice their lives for communism. Who would do that today? You know, that sort of thing. So, uh, when Shem Yochai faces the might and power of Rome, he doesn't fight against the Romans, he goes into a cave and he waits it out. And, uh, as I said before, if you're listening to this, chances are you're from person. So, what's your strategy? You have day schools, you have shivas, you have basiakos, and probably you live in a Jewish, ne- probably live in a Jewish neighborhood, which de facto is some sort of a ghetto. You do your best to keep it in a ghetto, and you uh, basically try to create a cave-like situation. Uh, the modern Orthodox might not like me saying it, but it's true everywhere. I mean, I've been in, in Teaneck. <laughs> Teaneck is a cave of a certain type. Uh, you know, they don't have you know, Jews and non-Jews all going to common things together. It's just that everybody works in New York. So, they, you know, they, you can work on Wall Street, you can work in a hospital. But then you go back to <laughs> to the cave, as it were. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a very interesting uh, metaphor. And that enables uh, Shem Yechai and his son, the young son, to withstand the might of Rome. But then you have the re-entry problems. What happens if you come out of the cave? Now, today, in Jewish life, and Orthodox Judaism, it's a big machlokas. Many hold, you should stay your whole life in the cave. As the Bnei Brak, it's the Kolel, it's Eretz Yisrael. I mean, if you could do it, more, you know, more power to you. A person could sit and learn the whole life, if they like that, and if, and, and if they're built that way. I'm serious, I'm being funny. If you can live in Lakewood the whole time, and if you can live in Yonvalayla, and not have anything to do with anybody, if you're able to make that work financially and otherwise, because don't you hate? So then you never have to go to the cave. And if you're really lucky... You and your wife and your children and everybody else will stay the whole life in the cave and next generation, next generation, next generation. It's okay with me. I, like I said before, I'm not speaking cynically or anything like that at all. On the other hand, chances are, if you're listening to this podcast which is in English, uh, you're probably living in America or someplace like that, and chances are you're not learning in a colo right now. You have a job. Uh, you're out there. You, you've left the cave, or at least let's put it this way. Sometimes you go out of the cave, sometimes you go back in the cave. If you're a really fun person, it, 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 in the morning you go out to work, you leave the cave, and you go to the world of Harisha and Zria, you know, the, the world where, where uh, of Derek Heretz, as the expression goes. But then you come back home, and, uh, you know, you spend more time or less time within the cave. But what defines our social, sociological reality, our social reality today, is the fact that we go in and out of the cave all the time. That's what it seems to me. And as you see the story of Shem Yechai, I, I, I invite you to study it very closely. Uh, I'm serious now. I invite you to study very closely how he and his son interact with the people outside because you see, when he spent a whole lot of time in the cave, then it was really hard. Nisraf. Then there was a very harsh dissonance between the life they experienced in the cave, which was learning all day long, and Kabbalah, and the highest Madregas, and Anam Rishon Kodam And then you go out there, and nobody's interested in that. They're interested in Harisha Zria. And, um, you know, the father gets over it after an extra decompression, uh, 12 months. The son, it took more than that. Uh, and again, to be very contemporary, if you read the story closely, what is it that, that brought the son to um, equanimity? Uh, because if you remember the story, the father, Shem Yichai, said to his son, listen, you and I, the only people in the world that do right is you and I. We'll just have to get used to it. You and I can, be, can can hold up the world, right? You can't expect everybody else to be sitting and learning all day long like we did. We'll have to take that uh, and 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 live with the noblesse oblige of being the only ones who actually 
you know, keep Judaism 100%. Uh, everybody else is going to be less than 100%. This is not an unusual expression of Shem Yochai. I remember in the Gemara Sukkah, near the end somewhere, he says, me and Yosem Melch Yehuda, we could take on all the sins of the world. Because Yosem Melch Yehuda was supposed to be a big tzaddik. So, uh, I'm a big tzaddik, he's a big tzaddik, we could take it all, all, all the business. That's a highly elitist attitude. And it's one, as I said before, the blessed bleach. The rest of you guys out there are jackasses. You know, you know, you, 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 you're just going through the motions. Only a tiny, tiny, tiny few, maybe one, maybe two, can do the mitzvahs with the right quality that we can then share that with and, and, and be mezakah to rob them in that way. That, that, that's what he meant. Uh, however, that's not the end of the story. If you read the Gemara, you see the story is he ran into a chassid. He ran into an old man. Maybe it's Elian Novi, I don't know. And uh, the guy was running on Erev Shabbos, remember the story? And he was bringing myrtles, he was a poor guy, so he just bring flowers for the table. He, he was mechave v'samitzvahs. He's a Hasidic, you know what I'm saying? He's a simple, in the story, he's a simple person, an old man, and he's not learning, and he's not very wise or anything like that, but he loves the mitzvahs, he wants to beautify the Shabbos table. And therefore he, he, and he, and he can't afford uh, expensive flowers, he gets some cheap business, but once for Zohar and once for Shomar, and... That the father and the son were reconciled, you know. In other words, so not everybody. So you know, for 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 for, for total learning and uh, so you're not the biggest kabbalist in the world, but do you have avas Hashem, avas hamitzvahs? A very Hasidic a kind of a way of of uh, telling that story. So look what I threw at you now. The uh, the themes that really apply to us today for contemplation: uh, the cave in and out, uh, how much time you spend in each zone. How are you able to reconcile the two? How do you manage, let's put it this way, that when you come out of the cave, you don't burn everybody, as we would say today, be a turnoff. Uh, plenty of those. Um, how do you work out the Hasidic angle, which is what about the regular Joe Schmo who's just wants to, who loves Shabbos, who loves Torah, who loves Mitzvahs, who loves uh, Jews. And he's, not, and he's not spending all the time in the cave. How do, how do you work all that out? Um, how do you manage with your kids? How much? How do you keep them in the cave, and not that they should sneak out of the cave, you know? And uh, how do you make to use to use contemporary language? How do you make sure they don't bring the cell phone into the cave? You know, these are the problems we struggle with in Jewish life today, and I would submit that makes the Lag Baomer story uh, particularly relevant for you and I today. I think I'll close it over here. Have a good Shabbos.